Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. I guess I come to this with context that, you know, we had four months of lockdown where I couldn't move more than five kilometers from my house. So it's been a really hard time. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. Here in America, we don't know what the winter will bring, but we can look to Australia, who's just coming out of those cold winter months, for indicators of what's to come. Today, I sit down with Sean DeVry of Open Pantry Consulting, and we discuss how the Australian hospitality industry has fared during the winter and what we can do stateside to prepare for colder months. I know there's a Back to the Future reference in there somewhere. I'll let Sean take it from here. So Open Pantry Consulting is a consulting firm that I started four years ago. It's um, it's built around um, back of house operations and making sure that they're they're sound. So things like HR and recruitment, operational efficiencies, and things like marketing, making sure that fit outs are right. Like everything everything you can think of that that constitutes an opening of a venue, um, I've touched in sort of the couple of decades that I've been in the industry, but. Um, but really focusing on things like operational improvement and recruitment in HR. And, and what was the specific niche that you felt like you were serving when you started the company? What What was the hole in the market that you were trying to fill? Mm, that's a good question. I think through a couple of decades in the industry, I'd seen a lot of people do great things around wanting to improve brands, but really not having the back of house systems, SOPs uh, in place. And if they did have them in place, they weren't doing them consistently. So it was about building a system and plan to make sure that there was consistency from when you hire someone to when you actually bring them on and actually keep them in a, um, in a career in hospitality. The one, the one thing here in Australia, which we probably lack is thinking that hospitality is actually a career as much as other parts of the world. So really? there's transient people in our industry and and people that don't really respect the role that hospitality can have as a career. So I really wanted to change that over, over a number of different brands. That's really cool, man. Were, were there any universal problems and solutions that you saw? I'm sure everybody has a problem with labor. Was everyone making the same mistakes in, in a variety of areas? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the first, it's a bit like, you know, you've opened bars and restaurants before, Josh, um, and I've opened a lot of stores as well. Like the first six weeks of building a restaurant or a bar or a bakery or whatnot are really, really critical to the success of that venue. And it's very much the same when you recruit someone. 
So when you're recruiting someone the first six weeks of their onboarding, making sure that they actually do get onboarded at induction properly, they do have training systems in place. That was probably the thing which, which is the most important, which is often missed is like, we've hired you now, now what do we do moving forward? So that's the critical thing moving forward. I, uh, you know, there's this dichotomy that the way I was able to work it out in my mind is that there's a company and then there's a business, right? So like my company was prue and proper and the business was the restaurant itself. And so what, what I found time and time again, sadly, was that one could be in excellent health while the other is not. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a product of planning, right? Yes. I think a lot of a lot of venues don't really think about planning, right? They're so focused in the day-to-day, especially if a business owner is in their operationally day-to-day or they're just someone who really likes to be across every single minute detail that's happening. Like often they're not thinking about, okay, where is a brand actually going to go to? Like, what am I planning for here? Like the first question when I, you know, start working with someone is like, what do you want to happen? And that does often it, is a- Does everyone say, I want to make money? <laughs> well, <laughs> I want to stop losing sometimes, money. Sometimes, sometimes people just buy themselves a job, right? And they just don't, mm-hmm. they can't see the wood from the trees. So they've been in the industry for such a long time and they don't really know what they want anymore. Um, you know, the entrepreneurial types will make sure they're ahead of, you know, new opportunities that are coming through, um, um, know their cash flow situation, understand who they're hiring in their business. But um, there's there's not a lot of people who are doing that, but you can tell the ones who are. Right on. And education is a critical element, right? Where, where did you get your education and the tools that you use to improve other people's businesses? I think I was really fortunate probably in the first the first two brands that I work with, one was um, when I when I became a baker's assistant when I was sixteen, and and then became a franchise partner at, at twenty one, uh, with inside a brand here called Bakes Delight, uh, one of the largest sort of fresh bread retailers in the world. So I saw the systems and processes of hiring someone, training someone properly, making sure that you visualize their training, so you knew that they were doing the right things, and you were just continually doing that. And the second brand I work with was a brand called Grilled, which is a, a gourmet burger brand um, here in Australia, about 130 odd sites here in Australia now, which is a big brand. And they were going through that process when I first started with them when they had about 10 locations. So again, training systems proper, um, making sure that people are doing the right thing, great staff culture. So I was really fortunate sort of the first 15, 16 years of my career were with really two amazing brands that built on amazing staff culture, but also amazing training systems in order to continue, uh, have the continuation of that culture too. Yeah. You know, you and I had a conversation back in April and I I recorded the conversation and I was going to put it on the show. But, you know, when I listened to it back, I was like, man, that's some dark shit. And you were, (laughs) (laughs) you were, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you were in, you were in, a, in a, I guess this is just due to, you know, my, my own ignorance. I look back on the month of April and I think to myself, you know, we were entering summer, but you were entering winter. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, 
you know, just that that realization, you know, prompted a, this conversation because I was like, my God, no wonder things weren't rosy. You know, everything we were seeing on the news was, you know, things are going to improve. We're entering into the summer. Everything mm-hmm. that you were being fed was, oh my God, batten down the hatches. Yeah. The shit's yeah. about to hit the fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because all, all what we're hearing, Josh, is from like Europe was exploding at that point. Um, Italy, Greece, Spain, France, like everyone was like doing really poorly and we're about to head into into winter, as you were saying. And um, yeah, it was awful. And I think I think the time that you spoke to me as well, I think the week before, a couple of weeks before, like I'd literally sacked myself from the brand that I was, you know, second second in line to run. And mm-hmm. we didn't have any staff. We didn't have any locations anymore. We probably weren't going to come back. And I think I was just, yeah, I think it was dark because I was probably not in a positive place. <laughs> right, but it's it's so representative of of you know where where so many people were in that that time. And you know, as as an American being seated in America. You know, mm. it, going into the winter, you know, I thought what a valuable conversation to have with someone who's in the industry, who's an industry leader in, in their country, and they're just coming out of the winter, you know? And mm. so, you know, what I wanted to start by doing is framing the conversation. Mm-hmm. So broadly speaking, the pandemic hits, this is back in March. Yep. Uh, what was what was your government's position on it? What what were the initial steps as, as this thing rolled out? Sure. So I think I think you know for your American listeners, it's very much it's very similar. Our structure of government is very similar to yours in the way that we have a federal federal government, state government, and then council council kind of governments. Um, so the federal government said, okay, we're going to take a national approach here. The states are going to lead it and run it but it's going to be a national approach and we're going to look after, you know, the big sort of taxes part. They brought in um, a thing called JobKeeper, um, a bit like the UK system of furlough where they paid everyone who had been in a business for over 12 months, um, $750 Australian. So I looked at it yesterday just to give some context. So it's $530 in um, $530 American a week, right? And that was that was going to be at least for six months. So that gave people breathing room. That allowed a lot of hospitality businesses to keep their full-time staff. And then they would um, let go of their, their casual staff or part-time staff and say, mm-hmm. we hope to bring you back, but probably not. Um, and for the hospitality industry, basically around the country, we went to just takeout and delivery. And that was it. So no, no, you know, no inside, no outside dining nothing. Um, and that went on for, yeah, that went on for a couple of months. So that was kind of the first stage. And I think looking back in sort of March, April, May, when that was really sort of taking place, like everyone was kind of feeling okay. Like they were feeling good. They were feeling like, okay, well, I can do some improvements to my restaurant or business. I can, you know, maybe we can get through this and it will be a couple of months. And, but I think the, Way the the way the government handled it here was largely pretty good. In the state that I'm in, which is Melbourne, which is pretty much the the food capital of Australia next to Sydney, we had a second wave come in, and that was and and no one else did really in Australia, and that's where we were really the hardest hit. So we've just come out of pretty much 
four months of nothing again. So we had a month of being open in July. Yep, July. And then we've been closed again until literally this week as I'm talking to you. So it's been an interesting ride, man. Was there a full-scale lockdown, like stay-at-home orders, the whole nine yards? Yeah, so initially it was initially it was that. So it was like um, you can only leave your house for like three or four reasons. Um, there wasn't sort of um, a limit on where we could go in, in way of distance at the start. So we could still travel around the state and that kind of thing. But, but you know, interstate travel was obviously off the cards and um, – um, they wanted to make sure that, you know, everything was as locked down as possible. Um, retail was still open. Um, gyms were closed though. So it was kind of like a lot of food and, and, and shopping retail was open, but gyms were closed and, and obviously restaurants and, um, and that kind of stuff were closed. So it was kind of an interesting mix. Um, and then the states controlled like opening back up again in certain areas um, and the federal government sort of stood stood beside that or tried to support it. So very much like what's happened um, in the US. Yeah. Let's talk about consumer behavior. I'm wondering in the winter months, how did consumer behavior change? Were people eating out or eating just as much, but takeout and delivery? Uh, were certain, did certain cuisines prevail? Was it, you know, was it independent restaurants that seemed to do well? Was it the large chains that succeeded? Yeah. yeah. So I think so let's talk nationally for a minute as I talk to people in other states because Melbourne and Victoria are really separate from Australia because of the second wave that's happened. So you kind of have two different economies playing, playing the game in Australia. So around the country in cities like Perth, Brisbane, um, Adelaide, which haven't um, had the second wave that we had, sort of had two months of lockdown and then sort of gradually back open to normality, most of the industry is, is, is comping above on last year's sales, um, upwards of 20%. So some of, the, some of the pubs and restaurants are comping 20% higher than last year, right? Wow. If you look at Victoria, where, um, where because we've been locked down and only doing takeout delivery, like it's decimated it, right? So you're probably seeing about 15 to 20%, um, no, probably about 15% close straight off the bat within the first three months. Um, that will never come back. And then you're seeing um, probably another 20% at the moment who are thinking about it uh, moving forward. Um, if they want to continue to trade or if they don't, it's going to wait it out and see what the next couple of months are going to hold. As with cuisines, um, the QSRs have done okay as long as they're not, as long as they've got some really good brand alignments and they're not what I call a me too brand. So if they're not a, if they're not a Mexican brand that aren't sort of in, that are not offering something different and just being a bit, you know, a bit normal, they're probably in trouble because they're not really standing for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, fast food's definitely picked up. Um, uh, pizza's obviously definitely picked up, probably comping, you know, 15 to 20% more on last year. Um, across it's delicious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously anything with a drive, anything with a drive through is killing it. Right. So, yeah. um, that, so that's continued on. The other interesting thing we've seen in sort of premium fast casual um, is that they've done, you know, take home kind of boxes and that kind of thing, um, which I think um, has definitely kept them alive. You know, it's a space they haven't played in, if you call that, you know, delivery or at home. And that's kept them alive during this time. 
the question will be moving forward the next couple of months as sort of premium fast casual and fine dining rely on international tourism, um, especially in a place like Melbourne, um, how that is going to survive is going to be very interesting if they don't change their models. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where we're, where we're lying at the moment. What interesting pivots have you seen? Like for the people that are thriving, what would you say their, their secret sauce is? Have they made significant changes to their business or were they already built out for no, a no. pandemic type scenario? No, a lot of them weren't built out. So I think, I think it's been interesting to see how, you know, entrepreneurs in restaurants have really focused on this. I find the ones that have been at least as positive as they can be in the media and with their teams have, have got through this. Okay. So a lot of them have done, you know, amazing retail products, which they've done in grocery stores or, um, um, or especially retailers and that kind of thing, um, which they'd never done before. So trying to learn on the fly about, you know, how to do nutritional labels or what kind of ranging they should do and what their margins are. Like it's made them thinking about their business. Um, and as I just said, like we've, we've had this, delivery aspect with premium fast casual restaurants where they've done at home boxes um, where you'd pay, you know, Australian sort of 40 to $50 a head to have, to have an amazing experience that you'd normally get in a restaurant at home, as long as you can put it together yourself quite easily. So I think the value concept has been really um, something that's come through um, at the moment to at least keep these businesses, um, ticking over and alive so they can get through to the other side, which we're, we're hoping we can do in the summertime. For the folks that are listening, can you think of a couple of brands off the top of your head that you would say did it incredibly well that they could look up? That's a great, that's a great question. Cause so I like to a- steal, you know what I mean? Like I'm sure <laughs> I could come up with like a really good idea or I could just take somebody else's. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think if you look at, if you look at, um, so a lot of people around the world know, a, know a, um, a, a fine dining brand called Attica here, um, which is just Ben Sherry has just gone next level with what, what he's doing with his product. He's taken a fine dining concept and really made it accessible to a lot of people who wouldn't because, you know, it would normally be a sort of a $200 head kind of evening. Um, Provador, which is this delivery service, which is um, – has looked after many restaurants here in Melbourne um, and in Sydney um, has really given that gateway to a lot of premium, um, premium fast casual and fine dining restaurants. Uh, Shane Delia, who's, who's come from restaurants and done that in a delivery service has really saved a lot of brands. Um, So that's been really exciting to see. And then um, Nathan Tolman, who's, who's got Hazel um, and Desos um, and Geelong, um, Geelong uh, Beach House as well. Like he's got a number of different brands and I think for him to keep his team aligned and really positive during this time has been exciting to see. It's been, I think Josh, it's just been, it's been humbling to see in a really trying time that the hospitality industry and it's really positive leaders have led with being hospitable and being positive and being really kind to their teams and to their customers. Um, so I think that's the, you know, some of the positive that's come out of this is that the the real leaders have risen during this time of crisis. What about cocktails to go? Was that a thing there before? Is it a thing now? Uh, uh, no, it wasn't. Yes, it is. Um, definitely with um, probably the bar scene hasn't done it 
kind of well as what I thought they would do. Um, definitely some have, um, but it's more the sort of distilleries themselves who are doing that product and doing it to go. Um, it's definitely, definitely boomed, but I don't probably think to the level that I see in America, um, talking to people like you, but, um, but it's definitely now a, you know, it's definitely now a market, which is going to come through. Right. I never thought I would see cocktails to go and people paying anywhere between sort of $12 and $16 Australian for a cocktail to go. Like I never thought I'd see that, but it's, um, alcohol's just been such an interesting play during this time. Um, for sure. You know, non-alcoholic beverages, like it's, um, I've had a month of non-alcoholic beverages. Like it's, um, it's super interesting what's going on. So, yeah. Well, you know, in the U S the, the statistics where I can remember talking with my GM about this, who's, I don't know, he's got to be 15 years younger than me. He's in his mid twenties. I'm in my very, very early forties. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I was talking to him about his generation and I was saying, you know, statistically, there's never been a generation since prohibition that has had less to drink than your generation. I mean, especially with like, you know, the legalization and mass distribution of marijuana and things like that. Alcohol was really trending down and had done so for years here in the States. Yeah. And then there was a global pandemic and people started boozing it up. And so... (laughs) I, you know, it's, which is inspiring if you're, if you're in that, that particular medicine industry and uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this transitions back into normal life. As you guys get into the summer, what do you Mm think is going to stay? What what pivots do you think are going to go? How do you see this thing evolving? I think it will be around, you know, experience driven concepts, which is, really really tough because obviously we're so we have it's mandatory mask right right now right in victoria when you walk outside so it's it's really tough to deliver an experience behind a mask um as you would know um outdoor dining is the thing that will save the industry moving forward in summer so i'm involved in a couple of different projects around um the city center um in melbourne um about unlocking um unlocking big regions of the city with 30 to 40 venues to, to basically build a festival concept over summertime, um, which is really exciting. But we're at the moment we're allowed to have um, venues are allowed to have 50 people outside as a, as a rule. Um, So it's just the early stages of it. Hopefully it will grow a bit more um, and very little inside. So outdoor, outdoor dining is definitely going to save it. Um, I think things like the at home box, which I just talked about, Obviously, that's going to become less of a generator of cash, but it is going to become that new channel of business, which if restaurants can understand how to um, still make it as part of their you know, daily production or weekly production, then I think that will stay. Um, I'm worried a lot of venues will take that off too quick and say, oh, no, we're back to indoor, you know, inside dining where we're going to take that off because I think we need to really wait out the next six months to see what happens. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, restaurants doing retail products in, in grocery stores. Like I think it's now bred a new level up of like what is um, premium sauces or, or premium dressings or even, you know, premium ready-to-go boxes um, in people's homes. And I don't think people want to switch back from that. 
it would just allow restaurants to create more streams of revenue in order to have people shop their brand more. So I think that's that's exciting. But how um, how venues manage those different channels of business is going to be the challenge moving forward the next six months as things start to open up again here in Melbourne. I hate to get prescriptive, um, but I think if there was ever a time for advice, this is this is it. So, yeah. you know, to, to the audience, you've got a bunch of restaurateurs that are about to enter the winter season. And do you have any actionable advice based off the experience that you're coming out of that, that you could impart based off what you have seen work and work consistently? I think, first of all, you've got to be like, you're in this to make money, right? So you've got to know your cash situation first. That's critical. So understand your cash situation because the next couple of months are going to be really challenging if you know certain parts of America, from what I could see, had you know different rules and obligations, right? So some are doing takeout delivery only, some are doing indoor dining. Um, New York's doing twenty five twenty five percent indoor dining over winter. Like, um, it's going to be a big challenge. So you got to know your cash situation um, over the next couple of months and really make sure that it's you know the worst worst thinking around the projection, I suppose. So you so you come out the best way. Um, over communicate with your team. Tell them about, tell them where you're at. Tell them you don't know how this is going to ride out, but you're here for them. Like if you're in a position where you can hold for the next couple of months until a vaccine comes through, then then make sure you're keeping your best and your brightest staff. Um, and make sure you look at your channels of business. Make sure that um, if you're using providers to do that for you rather than doing it yourself, then you're making sure that your you know percentages are in line um, that you're, you know, offering, uh, selling products that you're actually making a good margin on and continue to have a good deal with your landlord, continue to have a good conversation that's built around a percentage of revenue rather than a, rather than a stock level, um, um, ongoing flat rate. Um, you need to make sure that that landlord wants to work with you ongoing if you want to keep your business open. So I think, I think a lot of the brands here during that winter time have done, the little, the most they could with the less, with the least amount of team, making sure they could get through with the hope of going back to indoor and outdoor eating because they know that's when they're, where they're going to make money, especially on things like alcohol. Um, um, hopefully that's going to work. Um, so if you can hold out till next summertime in America, I think that's probably the plan moving forward. Great advice. Great, great advice. Um, it's an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Um, and this time, I would like to frame it, not only because we're friends, but because I think you have a lot to offer. And and you're coming out of a really difficult time as a human and as a country. And, uh, and, and I, I would love to hear some words of encouragement based off the amazing that you saw achieved during that that difficult time in Australia? It's a great question. I guess I come to this with context that, you know, we had four months of lockdown where I couldn't move more than five kilometers from my house. So it's been a really hard time. So I think the thing that's been really positive for me and why I've done, you know, more podcasts during this time is I knew conversations were really important to keep my mental aptitude up and keep me positive. So I think keep as positive as you possibly can yourself and then you can um, use that with your team as well to keep them positive. Like that is the only thing which is going to get you through. This is actually a positive mindset, being clear on what your goals and objectives are 
and making sure you can hold on so you can thrive post this pandemic if that's what you want to do. But the thing is that this industry is the most exciting industry to be a part of. And um, I'm so happy I'm a part of it because the people in it have kept me going during this time. So it's just been an amazing ride. That's Sean DeVries. For more on what he and the Open Pantry team are working on, go to openpantryconsulting.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.